This is The People's Show with Bit Nizar and Randeep Janda. Welcome back to The People's Show. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio. If you want to be part of the show, texting in 650-650 into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. This is, uh, this is dark. Putting people in a mood here. I just dropped a fat beat. What, do you, what of it? This is what they're playing in Denver today. When's your mixtape coming out? Uh, Friday. Nice. Dom's Bombs. <laughs> Look for it on Spotify. Dom's Bombs and the Apple DJ. Music. Who produced this track? DJ Norby? Yeah. We're doing a collab. Doing a collab. Number one uh, producer, artist duo in, duo in Budapest as well. So there you yeah. go. There we're, you go. We're the best, bro. <laughs> we are the best music. You got to say there. It's the Slavic version. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. People asking for the uh, Canucks talk. We'll get into it right now. Oh, it's coming. Uh, we'll replay everything uh, Elias Patterson had to say in just a minute here. But we Can you put uh... on the Canucks game? <laughs> Uh, we did uh, see a D pairing today, which kind of raised some eyebrows for some people at the uh, scrimmages. It's a summer scrimmage. Calm down. These aren't uh, official. These aren't the training camp lines or anything like that. Before anything, let's let's say that. I will not calm myself, though. This is something that I've been talking about from last week. What was the one experiment I wanted in training camp? It was Oliver Ekman Larson, Quinn Hughes. And in, in this very, very important scrimmage, which it's not, that's exactly what we saw. The biggest indicator of Stanley Cup success, summer scrimmages. Get your two best defensemen on the same pairing. And yes, there's a drop-off in the second one. But if they're playing 25 minutes a game, Bick, mm-hmm. together, and o- uh, sorry, and, and Quinn Hughes is not killing penalties most likely, he's getting that much more time on the power play, that much more time on five on five, I don't mind it. Keep experimenting. It was Ekman Larson with Hughes, by the way. He yep. was on the right-hand side. I don't know if we said that, but there you go. It could just be a thing of like, hey, let's figure this out, because the, the other pairing was Shannon Pullman. Yeah, Pullman on the left side. So that one like just doesn't work. No. Like, so th- that's not going to be a thing. But whatever we heard, that Hughes is open to playing the right-hand side. Would yes. Like to give it a try. So there you go. There, there's a little bit more noise there. They have enough bodies to like not have Tucker Pullman on the left side. That's... I don't think we need to worry about that. Yes. I don't want him playing on his offside, that's for sure. Sure. But like DeKaiser, Rathbone, like there are bodies. Dermot. There are bodies to put on the left side. So it's really just like who's available, who's there. Shannon Poolman, yeah, just just go ahead, go together. It's a summer scrimmage. But we did see Hughes and Ekman Larson. Something or nothing? I want to say it's something. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. It's a little bit of something. A little bit of something. It's right in the middle. My believe-a-meter is ticked up. Believe-a-meter, whatever it's called. <laughs> uh, so, that, again, it's, it's interesting. It, it's an experiment worth trying, and we'll see if that persists into the next scrimmage or into next weekend's camp. But, yeah, it, it, it raised eyebrows. And to explore the upside of what you were talking about, managing the minutes is going to be always fun to, to keep an eye on. But they've tried it. See how it goes. And the scrimmage, I don't mean that. I mean in training camp, I mean preseason, give it a try. And it could be something 
you know, permanently potentially as being your number one pair. Or it could be the pair that you load up with when you mm-hmm. really need offense, when you need to make sure you're pushing in a game. So it gives you options at the very least. It's a start of something. The, the, the bigger indicator, not so much, hey, these two guys together. The bigger thing, to, I guess, to be excited about is Quinn Hughes on the right side. Yes. That's the bigger headline, for me at least, is Quinn Hughes on the right side. He's the special talent. And the big concern is, well, what's happening on the Canucks' right side? If you just do a short-term fix, and, and look, maybe he's f- fantastic at it. Maybe that's the long-term fix. We talk about how difficult it is to find right-shot D-men. Uh, Sats talked about this, too, of D-men that have played, I think, 12 minutes, or maybe it's 15 minutes, across the league that are right-handed. How many do you think there are? Across the league. And just a reminder, there are 32 teams, each with three D-pairings. You do the math on that, that's 96 bodies. How many right-handed shots played over 15 minutes? I think it's like 94. So there's not enough bodies to to play credible minutes across the league. If you find a guy and it's easier to just find left-handed D-men, you just say, hey, Quinn, you can play the right side. We'll, we'll find from a larger supply and fix our right-shot D-man problem with you. Yeah, and part of this is going to be how does he defend on the right-hand side if this is a thing. But you generally bank on that special talent to figure it out, right? Skating, IQ are his two biggest assets. Playing on your offside, can you, with those assets, can you figure it out? Can you still continue to be dynamic? Can you be defensively sound? That'll be the experiment. That's why, you know, there is an element of a a pretty big question here. But who do you feel more confident in figuring it out? Him or a less mobile Oliver Ekman Larson? I'd say Quinn Hughes. And I understand Ekman Larson has, you know, the defensive side of things. He's probably more suited to be a, a shutdown guy. And he played that role last year. But you want somebody who can skate well, who's good on their edges, to be playing on their offside as well. And Quinn Hughes checks those boxes. So the experiment, if and when it happens in training camp, really looking forward to seeing how he looks playing that side. 650-650, keep coming uh, coming in with your thoughts into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We'll get into uh, Elias Pettersson, kind of a conversation of uh, what uh, a comeback season looks like. Uh, Step back or bounce back? What is forthcoming for Elias Pettersson? But first, let's hear from Elias Pettersson, who met with uh, media today after he finally uh, stepped on the ice with his Canucks teammates. Uh, I feel good. I've had a good summer back home. Um, uh, had a long time like thinking about going through my last season and learn from it, and and uh, had a good summer of training too. So I'm pumped to be back. I'm excited to see all the guys again, and yeah. Excited to be back. Anything in particular you focused on in your summer in terms of working on something in your game? I mean, obviously, I mean, for me, it's always trying to get stronger, faster. Uh, and that's what me and my coach back home been working on. Um, so I think, um, yeah, that's basically what I've been doing all summer. You mentioned learning and reflecting on your season. Was there anything you took away from it? I mean, obviously, I mean, we can be honest. My start last season wasn't the way I wanted to start and I was just um, I grown from that and learned like why it happened and then why I had the second half of the season why I played like that and was basically it's two different me's out there and I was just playing with a lot more confidence in the second half so um, but I mean I'm I'm like somewhat happy I went through it because uh I know how I got out of it, if that makes sense. Some of that wasn't a 
to you, though? I mean, you were dealing with the wrist recovery and the wrong stick and things like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, not real. I mean, I wasn't feeling, I mean, I wasn't uh, playing with as much confidence as I always been. So, um, with the, all the answers in hand, I'm, I'm like, it sucks it happened, but I'm also like glad it happened because I, I got experience from it and I took myself out of it. What was your reaction when you saw JT had resigned? Oh, super happy. I mean, we, were <clears throat> we all know what he can do out there, and um, yeah, I was super happy. You look sharp out there today. Do you feel like you're entering the season? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I hope so. <laughs> um, no, but I uh, I had a good summer training. Um, didn't really <clears throat> go on any vacation. I was just uh, working out all summer, trying to prepare myself as much as possible. So scrimmage felt good. Still a little jet lag. Woke up 4 a.m. this morning, um, but um, felt good. Uh, felt a little rusty today with like conditioning, but I know I will feel a lot better tomorrow. When did you get in? Uh, I got in like 7.15, 7.30 p.m. Yesterday. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Was yeah. that scrimmage anything to go by? I mean, you had jump out there today. You were up and down the ice. You were tracking back, back checking. You did it all. That's yeah, I mean, it's. I'm just trying to get... Um, oh, I realize now I haven't talked English in a while. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, yeah, I mean, I felt good. I'm just trying to get back to like the usual habits of... Um, playing the right way so um, yeah felt uh, maybe the third period I felt the legs weren't there but I mean it's the first day I haven't skated since Friday so um, I'll feel a lot better tomorrow. And it's nice to have that, that clear mind this year you don't have the injuries you don't have the contract situation hanging over your head is it nice to come in with a clear mind? Yeah most definitely I mean that was um, I mean I didn't have a training camp last season I came in Expectations were even higher, as they should, but um, I was just um, um, focusing on the wrong things, what people wanted to see from me instead of just focusing on myself. I mean, I don't have the exact answer why it happened, but I like to think I've learned from it, and I'm obviously I feel, I can tell I just feel a lot better uh, coming into this, this season. One thing that young players always seem to have to learn is that there's actually so much more in them. Do you think you've had that realization that you Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, last season I had, I learned a lot that uh, no matter how good I played, the first two seasons or uh, third season was, was kind of slow stuff. But like, doesn't matter how good I played, like to say the first two seasons, you still gotta have that same hunger or how should I say? I mean, I was um, training hard coming into. Like uh, my so last season, but I was just uh, letting things get inside my head. But I mean, I I learned from it. So I'm still learning. So um, just trying to see the positive. After the way that you and the team played down the stretch, even though you didn't make the playoffs, how exciting is it that most of those guys are back? Bruce is back, and you can try to start the year the way you ended. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know how good we played uh, ever since Bruce came in, and how close we were even to make the playoffs. Um, so I think, I mean, first first day in for me, but I still feel like it's, it's just like uh, uh, we're ma- joking around with practicing hard, uh, a lot of new faces in the like medical staff and the strength staff. So um, I feel good. I'm, um, I'm excited. 
sounds like you've done quite a bit of reflecting this offseason. Just like, what does it feel like maturing and kind of growing into this league now with a few years under your belt? <laughs> uh, yeah, it feels good. I mean, I'm always trying to learn, and I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, I mean, I'm still young, but I'm like, I'm not one of the youngest. Uh, so, um, and I'm, I mean, I'm always trying to take steps every season, and and I've just felt I, I matured a lot from last season. I learned from it. Anybody you're skating with in the summer? With, uh, uh, I've, ska- I've skated uh, a bit with Jesper Bratz, uh, Malte Stromwall. Uh, he's with Canes now. Uh, I mean, I've skated with a lot of guys, but just like the coaches I've skated the most with. Sounds like a lot of what you learned is mental, like, mm-hmm. like between the years as much as what goes on the ice. Did you get any help with that, or was, that just, was it all just no, self-reflection? I don't want to think... I mean, I don't want it to be a headline that though. I, I, I met a mental coach and now I'm feel good against. I didn't do that. Uh, I, I mean, I like to. I'm pretty stubborn myself, and I'm always talk to my parents after every game. I talk to my brothers and oh, brother. I don't have, uh, and just the people closest to me. I'm, those are the ones I talk to the most. Does it feel like you're a team now? Like it's your fifth season which seems crazy but yeah. it feels like you just showed up last week but this is, is this you know you tell me this is where I am this is yeah I mean I feel I feel this feels like home I mean I'm uh, I'm happy here uh, so uh, I'm just I'm just super excited I've been training hard all summer uh, I'm trying to prepare myself as much as possible so uh, yeah I'm glad I'm finally here and uh, can't wait to get started as Brock opened up about the off-ice struggles he was going with with his father's health, uh, how important was it for you to support him as you know being one of his closest friends? Yeah, obviously. I mean, that's what friends do, and uh, I mean, can't even think of what he went through uh, with his dad, and it just shows. I mean, how strong he is to to still perform the way he did uh, um, with all that going on. So. I mean, I'm always here, there for him to support, uh, but he's um, he does it uh, he does it well on his own anyway. During the season, did you was that a thing you often had to do? Were you really aware of how? Uh, um, I, I like to keep that private. It's between me and him. So Elias Patterson meeting with media today after his uh, first time on the ice arrived last night. No rest for the weary. It's that European jet lag, man. Up at 4 a.m., ready to go hit the ice today. So What did you do your first day back after your uh, hit the French ice. Rivera, Riviera trip? I came here. Came into studio. Actually, you were in work the That's next right. day, weren't you? Slightly different than Elias Pettersson. Though. He, he was actually by the third hour, by the way. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason we weren't streaming right, that it, day. Yeah. It's, it's your version of a scrimmage. Absolutely. Same so, amount of effort, really, I'm sure, put into that. The mental taxing on your mind to, to, to come in and work with Riccio that day? Yeah, can you that's, imagine? That's tough. Carrying Richo for those that's two days? That's tough, man. Yeah, he's pretty small. It's Fre- not that fresh hard. off of a. Uh, it's like a sack of potatoes. Just throw them on yeah, your shoulder. Exactly. <laughs> but okay, on Elias Pedersen. Yeah. More importantly, it's like nine hours of, of sleep, and he's just like ready to go. Yeah. Just, just, just real quick. Quick nap, and away you go. So he, he probably didn't even watch the football game last night. No, I, I think he was probably had other things on his mind. Vic. He was like, "Let's nap." All right, on his. What he had to say, some really interesting stuff there, right? Uh, the first thing, right off the bat, mentioning I wanted to get stronger this year. Something that we've heard 
from people within the organization as well as that, hey, yeah, just getting a little bit stronger. Bruce Boudreaux talked about it. The other aspect was not necessarily using the health trouble, the injury, as an excuse. Said he didn't have the confidence and really downplaying the injury. I like that. And even though the injury, I'm sure, had an effect. But if you look at the season that he had last year, it was a tale of two halves. First half, 20 points in 39 games. But 65% of his starts were in the offensive zone. Like, he was getting opportunities gifted, and the confidence was just shot. Was not able to create. During that stretch from the beginning of the year till January 19th, that was a game against Washington. It was a midday game. He was 13th on the team in points per 60, 5 on 5. That's how low the confidence was. Second half of the year? 13th on the team. Like, not... No, no, we're... I'm not, not like the Western Conference, not the Pacific 13th Division. 13th on the team. Yeah, that's, that's rough. Then you look at the second half with Bruce Boudreaux. That 65% of Ozone starts went to 51%, was given more responsibility, 5-on-5. Five five. Number shoots up to 2.34 points per 60 per game. Or per, per 60, sorry, 5-on-5, five five, which was top... Three on the team. He goes from 13th to top three. That tells you, you know, just how, how you know, volatile that confidence was, especially early on in the year. So you look at that and you say, okay, this guy understands what the issue was last year. Downplaying the injury just sounds confident, sounds, sounds wired and ready to go. The confidence is a big thing because there were so many moments in that first, what, 35 games? prior to that Washington game, basically, that there would be a snippet and people would jump to it and say, Petey's back. All right, nice deke, nice shootout goal. He's back. And it just never materialized. There were very small sparks, and a lot of people were waiting for the full ignition and the full roar of a fire. It took some time, but then you kind of saw what the back half of the season was like and lit it up. Finished with kind of the same spot where he always finishes, it was just a bumpy road to get there in the march towards 60-plus points. Tough road. But it's about finding that second level now. And he kind of said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm putting more mental training this offseason, but it, was, it wasn't as if it was with a mental specialist coach to work on restoring the confidence, the confidence. But it's an understanding of why I struggled, how I came out of it, and how I can start the season off on that platform. That's what's going to be key here. And if you're trying to project, are we going to see a step back from Elias Pettersson or are we going to see a bounce back from Elias Pettersson? My thing has always been, I'm going to bet on talent. Yeah. If, if if you're not an Elias Pettersson person, I think you're wrong, but I, I okay, that's fine. Aesthetically, he's not your type of player. Okay. He's going to produce. In this league, he's going to produce. There's too much talent there and constantly star players in any sport – Always figure it out. That guy's a star player. And if I had to bet on 75 points or 55, I'm betting on 75. Yeah, the step is there. And I think we've been calling it for the last couple of years, but the second half of the year does instill confidence in saying, okay, clearly something was off. Confidence was a part of it. He's downplaying the injury, but we know that was the wrist was an issue for at least a part of that stretch. There's going to be a step. There's going to be a, a jump up in his game. And I guess the, the question is, can he hit a guy that's, you know, a number that a, a player in the news today actually hit? Jordan Cairo, I don't know if you noticed in St. Louis, mm-hmm. got paid. Got $65 million over eight years. 
I'm sure Elias Pedersen and his team paid attention to that deal as well. He hit 75 points in 74 games last year. So point-per-game player, didn't play a full season, but hits that threshold. Is Elias Pedersen capable of hitting 75? Absolutely he is. Like, if you get more consistency out of him than you got last year, because the first, it feels like 39 games of the year were terrible. There were moments where, okay, a multi-point game here or a multi-point game there. But outside of that, big, it was not not much to get excited about. Fans and, and media were glorifying the odd dangle. Oh, like a reverse hit. He's doing it again. Oh, he's back. No, he's not. No, and it, it just didn't happen. But the second half of the year, multi-point games left, right, and center. They were coming from every which direction. He was confident. He was making players around him better. And I go back to that oh, oh, sorry, offensive zone starts figure, which was... When you are not getting any points, when you don't have any confidence, a coach is going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say, all right, let's get you in the offensive zone. Let's build that confidence. Maybe we can get you going. Second half of the year, it was almost 50-50 down the middle, getting those starts in the defensive zone and the offensive zone. That's important. That's a player that's comfortable and confident in either end of the ice. And had to win on both sides. Had to win on both sides. And if you see more of that this year, I'd say if two-thirds of the season or three-quarters of the season is that Elias Pettersson rather than the one that we saw in the first half of last year, 75 points is easily, easily doable, and I'd be looking more towards 85. Let's go. I'm just saying, like... Let's go. No, I think There's I think, a more mature guy that's coming to... It feels like a more mature guy coming to the NHL this year. Understanding I, last year was a learning curve. There was a lot of pressure that he loaded himself with. I believe he's got the talent for a 90-point season at some point in his career. Line mates and power play usage is really going to be an indicator of that. If there's a scenario where he plays with Brock and Garland, yep. maybe there's a 90-point scenario. But if he's playing with Podkolzin and Mikheyev, something that I've talked about, that'd sure. be interesting to see. That's probably more like a 70-75 point sure. with a ton of defensive value in that scenario. So you can play up to a 90-point value. But I'm skeptical if you can get to 85-90. The line mates is going to be a big thing. Yeah. Because I like the pairing of Podkolz and Mikheyev with a center. It, it could be Elias Pettersson. We've talked about the the shutdown ability of an Elias Pettersson. Do you put him in that role? But you could probably go in a different direction if you want to with a, you know maybe a Bo Horvat on that. A very you know, heavy line with those two guys. You potentially move Pedersen in a different direction to go more skill and more offense. I think that they're going to, if the Canucks can figure out their power play this year, which is going to be vitally, vitally important for them to be successful this year, Pedersen's going to be in the middle of it. He's going to be picking up a lot of points. JT Miller's going to be picking up a lot of points on the power play. And if they play up to their potential, which is something that we've talked about for the last couple of years, I think the points will be there. But five on five, yes, if it's Mikheyev, Podkolzin, you probably want to lower that number a little bit. But if you go a little bit more offensive, Bick, I think 80, 85 is, is realistic with this guy. He is a point-per-game player. Can he stay healthy and can he get those points out? Bick Nazar and Randy Janda here on The People's Show. On the other side, uh, we'll talk to Mark Schofield from SB Nation, national NFL writer. He'll join us as he will every Tuesday. We love talking to him. Breaking down the QBs. He's going to put us inside the helmet and we'll break down uh, – what some QBs were thinking, Patrick Mahomes, getting to Geno Smith. Is is there a Geno Smith era, or is this a one-game blip? I don't know. Why would you say something so controversial yet so brave? Hey, man, I said it last week, said it two weeks ago. Don't worry about Geno. 
Gino had a week. Let's start there. The lie detector test determined that was a lie. Give the man his flowers. Outperformed Russell Wilson yesterday. What happens to flowers? It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. What happens to flowers after a week? They will. You got to toss them out. All right. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) All right. We'll get into it with Mark Schofield on the other side. Here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. This is the People's Show with Big Nazar and Randy Janda. Welcome back to the show. Big Nazar, Randy Janda, live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.com. Net. Dominic Schmatty running the show today. And of course, you, 650 650, into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. And this, is like, this is like the uh, rights free Matchbox 20 and Santana. It, <laughs> it, it felt like that, man. It had some Latin vibes to it. I, a I guitar it, going on. I thought originally it was uh, like Scott Joplin uh, ragtime music, and then it it, 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 it turned into a Rick Purple. Uh, yeah, Loved it. Rob Thomas style. Dom, you're gonna have to send me the uh, the so- name of that song. That's uh, it was smooth. Some vibes, man. Some Havana vibes going on there. Uh, six fifty, six fifty. Media took the L today by not asking Elias Pettersson about Elias Pettersson. <laughs> Did you know Elias Pettersson before they drafted him? Do you know him now? Did you call Patrick Alvine before? Do that? You guys have bunk beds. What? Just calm down here. <laughs> calm down here a little bit. Uh, 650-650, keep coming with your thoughts. Let's talk to our guy, Mark Schofield from SB Nation, lead writer at SB Nation. What's going on, Mark? Vic, Randeep, it is great to be with you, gentlemen, on this fine Tuesday afternoon. A new season, baby. It's underway. There is, there is, welcome to the era of unbridled optimism in... (laughs) Shall we say 15 fan bases? Sure. 20 or so? Yeah. So can we include Seattle among them? We we sure can, man. There's a Geno Smith era emerging in Seattle. Unbridled optimism. <laughs> just just unchecked optimism. I mean, why not? On a night like that with the plays that he made, at least in the first half, mm-hmm. to get a win in that environment, on that stage, in that setting, with those storylines... I think Seahawks fans can enjoy it today. So here's what I was saying in the weeks leading up to this season, and obviously in particular with the matchup, but in the conversation with Geno, and I want to start there, is I thought like the, the idea of Geno Smith, the memory people have is New York and just how bad it was, and we're so far removed from that, that in his little spell and in preseason, there was like enough to look at and say, okay, this is a real quarterback. He gets the basic. He's not flashy. He's not going to be the reason you he flings the ball over the air and you're not going to build an offense around him. But he's had a career because he understands the basics. And things are going to go wrong for this season for the Seahawks offensively because, look, they have rookie tackles. They're going to be a work in progress. It's a new offense that they're designing not around Russell Wilson. Some things are going to go wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be an indication of Geno. Was last night kind of – evidence of that, that this can work a little bit, even if there's a massive ceiling on the offense? I, I think so. And 
we've heard all summer long and over the past couple of weeks that everybody in that building says, nah, you're all wrong about us. We're going to be better than you think. As everybody on a national stage kind of says, oh, you know, Seattle's obviously – you know, in transition, they're going to be looking at a new quarterback next year. Drew Locke, Geno Smith, it doesn't matter. But I, I think what we saw last night, and really what, you know, I wrote about this over the summer at USA Today. Others wrote about this as well. Geno Smith can be a good functional, you know, mid-tier starting quarterback in the NFL when everything goes right. And you saw that in the first half. His ability to keep his eyes downfield, his ability to work through reads, his ability to make anticipation throws, his ability – you know, he's not the world's best athlete at the position, but he can extend plays with his legs and with his feet in the pocket and make defenses pay when there are breakdowns. You certainly saw that on the first touchdown throw last night. You know, there's a recipe for it to be successful. Now, I don't think anybody's getting over their skis and saying that this is suddenly the team to beat the NFC West and that this is gonna, uh, there's a playoff run coming. But when things click, it can work. The offense, like you said, it does have a seam and there will be limitations. You saw some of that in the second half when Bradley Chubb was able to get to Geno Smith twice and you had the near strip sack where Chubb punched the ball out and luckily cross recovered it. But, you know, there will be some bumps along the way. But in the first half in particular, you saw what this offense can be when things are going right. Yeah, there were some questions. I know some national uh, pundits had the uh, Seahawks O-line as the worst in the NFL in the preseason. Uh, some work to do, but still, he also had some time early on that game. Looking at the other side, which, credit to the Seahawks, and uh, I'll be honest, I've been a bit of a hater the last couple of years, but that was an impressive win yesterday. Looking at the other side, though, Russell Wilson as a Bronco, first impressions. Well, I, it's interesting, guys. You, I've heard it mentioned before, Nate Tyson, others, Seth Galita from Pro Football Focus, they've talked about, you know, in Seattle, now even in Denver, there's not an offense. There's a Russell Wilson offense, right? And we saw some of that last night in, with the Denver Broncos. You saw, you know, a lot of throws to the outside, throws to John Vontae Williams out of the backfield. He had 12 targets last night, not a lot of stuff over the middle. You know, it's an offense that is going to sort of live or die with, Russell Wilson's strengths and perhaps weaknesses as a quarterback. You know, his ability to throw downfield with touch, his ability to attack to the boundary, you saw that. You saw that on the touchdown, for example. But then there are limitations to what he does schematically and what he's comfortable doing as a quarterback. And as Seahawks fans saw over his time in Seattle and Denver fans saw a little bit of last night, when defenses know what they can focus on and what they have to take away and know that perhaps there's an area of the field where you don't have to worry as much about that gives you an advantage. I saw this for years with Tom Brady when he was in New England, because there was a time during Brady's career where, you know, he really wanted to attack over the middle and underneath and not so much to the boundary. And then you had guys like Rex Ryan that would design defenses to force him to throw outside the numbers. And that's when he would sometimes have some troubles. When you have that ability as a defense to just focus on particular areas of the field you can have success in limited what, to limited what offenses can do. So that's going to be the challenge for Nathaniel Hackett and Russell Wilson is finding ways to still attack defenses given where Wilson prefers to throw the ball. And I feel like we kind of saw where NFL defenses is going. It's, it's one week, but we've heard so much of hey, this transition of previously, like what Seattle had success with and the league kind of adopted to now – what uh, the Rams had success with, and everyone's trying to go to high safeties, and that's the term I think everyone's going to hear. And so, okay, how does offenses start to attack that? And I feel like maybe the best indicator was 
the, the, the star players go figure mark, but Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes, uh, we saw in week one of, hey, these guys evolved as the defense is trying to evolve. Right. And, you know, we are sort of, you know, living in this too high world. And I think we saw a lot of that last year. And I think the next evolution in that is some stuff we saw last season. You know, we've, we've seen it. Obviously, teams have done it. You certainly see it at the college level. The Big 12 with the drop eight. And you're rushing three. You're dropping eight. And you're just saying, look, if you want to throw the ball, fine. We're going to drop eight into coverage, and we are going to force you to play against a numbers disadvantage as an offense. And you certainly saw that in the AFC Championship game where the Bengals did that, you know, I don't want to say almost exclusively in the second half against Kansas City, but they certainly used a lot of it, and it forces you to be patient. And that was one of the questions facing Mahomes coming into the season, certainly a question facing Josh Allen. Like, when teams are going to stay in those two high shells, when they're going to drop seven and eight and force you – as a dynamic, explosive, game-changing type of quarterback to take the seven-yard throw. Are you going to do that? Allen did it. You saw it on Thursday night when the Rams dropped into those seven and eight coverage looks, when they dropped into the two high, cover two quarters coverage looks and dared him to sort of take things underneath. By and large, he did that. And then as soon as they rotated that one safety down and decided, look, you know what, he's, he's picking us apart underneath. We're going to bring that safety down. You get the deep shot plays over the top. That's the world that these quarterbacks are going to have to adapt to. You saw a little bit of it from Mahomes as well, showing some of that patience. And then when he gets the opportunities, then he's going to take advantage downfield. That's the push and pull we're seeing right now in the National Football League. You saw also another example, New England. They saw a drop eight on their one touchdown against Miami, but then they also had a play, a fourth down play where they saw another drop eight and they couldn't convert because – Mac Jones tried to force a throw. That's going to be the tension perhaps underlining a lot of what we see, not just in week one, but perhaps all season, these two high looks, these two and four, you know, coverage looks in the secondary or these drop eight coverages, our quarterbacks going to remain patient and then make defenses pay when they decide to bring that one safety down. You're listening to the people show. We're joined by Mark Schofield of SB nation and Mark, uh, a lot of overreactions here in week one, as is the case generally that happens every single week, one of the NFL season. But I want to start in San Francisco, Trey Lance. Uh, he played in a rainstorm, basically heavy, heavy rain. Uh, but prior to the heavy rain coming down, there were some moments, uh, w- which he was pretty uneasy as well. Is that an overreaction to, to worry about him after week one, or was that simply down to conditions? He'll be much better than that next week. Yeah, you know, I, I put a lot of it, guys, on conditions. Um, you know, in watching that game live and then sort of rewatching over the past couple of days, I thought he did some things well. I thought he made some reason throws that he wanted to see. And there were some misses, some missed opportunities in that game. But I think part of it you could chalk up to the conditions. Part of it you can chalk up to – you know, there are areas where he certainly needs to improve. I don't think there's any question about that, where he needs to do a better job seeing the field, doing a better job sinking his eyes and his feet to put himself in position to make throws when he needs to. You know, that's part of the learning process for a younger quarterback. And so I'm not, I'm certainly not pushing the panic button on Trey Lance. I, I think a lot of it was conditions. There are certainly areas where he needs to improve, and I expect him to do that. I'd look for him to get better as this season goes on. And I'm still expecting big things from Trey Lance this season. It's going to be a process. It's going to be a process of getting him where he needs to be, getting his mind, his eyes, his feet all tied together and sequenced up. But I think he will get there as the season goes on. Uh, what do we make of Kirk Cousins? Uh, so much was made about Justin Jefferson. 
uh, having th- this new Cooper Cup style role in this offense, and he explodes for 184 and nine receptions. But someone's got to get him the ball. So is is Kirk Cousins going to be a beneficiary as well of uh, Kevin O'Connell running things in Minnesota? I think so. You know, I, I again watching that game, rewatching it, studying it. I, you know, Jefferson. There were certainly some coverage breakdowns where he was running free, and you know whether that's good design by Kevin O'Connell breakdowns from secondary miscommunications, a combination of the two. You know, we could debate what deserves more weight, but I think feature in Justin Jefferson is a very good thing for the Vikings and for Kirk Cousins. I think, you know, the offensive philosophy from Kevin O'Connell, the offensive school of thought that he comes from, obviously, with that Sean McVay tie-in, I think it's going to be very beneficial for Kirk Cousins. It's going to put him in a position where he's going to have some favorable matchups. They're going to find ways, even if defenses decide, hey, we have to take away Justin Jefferson. They're going to find ways to involve him in the passing game. They're going to find ways to create some of the favorable matchups that we saw Sean McVay create for Cooper Cup last year. And So I think, by and large, Kirk Cousins will be in position to benefit from that. We've seen the Packers sometimes start slow. So, you know, maybe this is a week one mirage because we've seen some week one mirages. But I think overall from what I saw watching that game Sunday and then rewatching it, Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson are going to be a problem for teams this year. You're listening to The People's Show. We're joined by Mark Schofield. And, Mark, you know, going close to home for you a little bit as well, the Patriots against the Dolphins, Tua had some interesting throws in that early on in that game, maybe some jitters, but he hits Jalen Waddle in that fourth and seven, which was a – a gutsy call from the coach, but on the Patriots side of things, where is this team at right now? Because I saw a lot of people essentially saying, all right, they look flat. They looked out of it. And as a team, as the Belichick era continues here, that was a a bit of a low to start off the season. And and I saw some worry amongst uh, Pat's fans and analysts. Yeah. The the worry guys has been building since training camp began. I mean, the, the offense looked good. Then they put the pads on, and the discussion really changed almost overnight. You know, talking to some of the beat reporters over our practices earlier this training camp, you know, there were some worrying phrases such as inefficient, ineffective, looked worse than a youth football team, and those really didn't go away. Then there was discussion, okay, this new offensive emphasis, this new offensive philosophy, this idea that they're going to run sort of a similar offense to what we were just discussing, sort of that you know, McVeigh, Shanahan, outside zone, wide zone, boot action type of system. Is it really going to work? Dante Scarnecchia, their, you know, longtime offensive line coach who's now retired, said if they get to padded practices, joint practices, preseason games, and it's not working, they'll scrap it. And that's what happened. You know, they didn't look good in joint practices. They didn't look good in their preseason games, particularly the one against the Raiders, where, you know, they played their starters into deep into the first half. What we saw Sunday was sort of a continuation of that. There were inconsistencies in protection up front. They had the strip sack where, you know, it should have been blocked up. There was a miscommunication on the left side of the offense. But for his part, Mac Jones did what he did last year, which had many people worried, assumed it was going to be blocked up, didn't confirm it, didn't take that extra glance or half step or moment in the pocket to confirm it, assumed it was going to be blocked up, gets hit from behind and he coughs it up inability to create explosive plays downfield. They had the one to Kendrick Bourne, but it was the only time he was targeted in that game. So these these small problems are starting to add up for the Patriots. Now, in years past, even last year, you know, Belichick has had this idea that you take the first four games or so, you use it as an extended training camp preseason to see what you do well, 
and then you start playing your best football. Well, look around the rest of the AFC. Now, they faced Pittsburgh this week, who obviously we saw what they did week one, and yes, J.J. Watts hurt, but that could be a tougher game than they thought. Then they get Green, they get Baltimore, they get Green Bay. This is not a good time to be sort of figuring things out when you look around the rest of the AFC when you have this schedule coming up. Mac Jones now banged up with a back issue. There's a lot of concern in New England right now, and with good reason. I, I thought, like, I rewatched that one, and you see seven points. or like, oh, this is going to be a disaster given what we saw in the preseason. Like, I, I didn't think it was that bad. The interception was kind of lucky. Uh, you know, it's tipped. It goes off a helmet, bounces in the air, and there's Javon Holland to pick it off. Um, like, what was clunkier to you, like the Patriots or the Packers? Uh, you know, I, I, I think they were both pretty clunky. I mean, I, I think with New England – it's more concerning because to sort of return to the discussion about two deep safety looks and drop seven, drop eight and all that stuff. If the name of the game in the NFL right now is we're going to force quarterbacks to be patient. We're going to force offenses to be perfect. And look, if you put together a 10, 11, 12 play drive on us, we'll tip your hat to you. The Patriots right now don't look like they can sustain those kinds of drives. And that interception was a perfect example where they're moving the ball. Well, they're moving the ball efficiently, but then you get the mistake. And then the flip side to that, the next step is when the defense decides to go down to that single high and bring that safety down to the box, can the quarterback then make you pay for that with a quick strike over the top against that single high coverage for a touchdown? The teams like the Bills and the Chiefs, and I'd say with Aaron Rodgers, they have that potential the Packers do. I don't know if the Patriots have that potential. When they see that single high coverage, which as a team that still says they want to run the football, they might see more of it. Do they have the ability – at the quarterback position and at the receiver position to make the defenses pay over the top. I don't think they have that explosive nature in them right now. They might be able to get there. When they get Tyquan Thornton back, I think that will certainly help. But right now, it's a big concern. All right. I don't think uh, either one of those teams are going to be featuring in your throw of the week from week one. <laughs> which quarterback, which throw was it? It's, I mean, again, as I say every week, there are so many good throws to choose from. I could have pulled the Carson Wentz throw. I think he had some throws against Jacksonville that stood out. But it's Mahomes, the crosser to Kelsey from right to left, where, again, you've got many defenders in coverage. He's going to layer it over the underneath defenders. He's going to drop it in before the safeties can rotate down. It is such a high level of difficulty kind of throw. And he makes them look easy. And we've talked about this. I've talked about this with you guys for years, The the graded scale for Mahomes seems to be unfair because we grade him on a different scale. He makes these throws, and it's like, okay, it's Patrick Mahomes. You kind of expect it. This or any other quarterback, or almost any other quarterback, say for Justin Herberts, Josh Allen's perhaps, Rodgers, Brady of the world, we'd say this is incredible. Mahomes is doing it on a down-to-down basis. He remains must-watch television, and we'll get to see him against another good quarterback on Thursday night. Yeah, just, again, really quickly on that throw, um, like, there's pressure in his face, and we, we heard last night so much about, hey, QB's going to the left. He's kind of, like, shuffling towards the left as well. Yeah, it, it's a throw from an unsettled base with pressure on his face that he has to layer. I mean, there are, to, to borrow the phrase, there are layers of complexity to that throw that makes it so difficult. I mean, if he made that throw from a clean pocket, it would be great. If he made that throw with pressure but still – with an ability to sort of step into it, it would be great. But to do that while sort of sliding your feet and with pressure in your face from an unsettled base and just kind of put it out there mostly on all arm, it's incredible stuff. 
Uh, Mark, we appreciate it as always, man. We're excited uh, that we get to talk to you again. Uh, congrats on the big move as well, Despy Nation. Uh, we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Have a fantastic afternoon. That's our guy, Mark Schofield. Go follow him on Twitter, at Mark Schofield as well. Great follow. And always shows love to Sportsnet 650 as Absolutely. well. He's been around pretty much since day one. Literally a day one or week one. There you go. Long time. Good you, dude. You, me, MDC, Sam Gagne. Sam Gagne was a part of that day as well. <laughs> and Mark Schofield. And Mark Schofield. Sam man, Sam Gagne. Still playing, man. Cashes at uh, plus 4,000. Life moves fast. Huh? Eddie Lack is a realtor. Michael Delzato is a realtor in Florida. Sam Gagne, still playing in Winnipeg. Man moved to Winnipeg this offseason. Stay in the league, man. Keep grinding. Stay in the league as long as real you possibly estate can. Real is really cheap there. Yeah. Uh, 650-650, someone texted in. Minor Matt uh, says, uh, what in the world was Nathaniel Hackett thinking? That was a question for Mark, but uh, just in general. We kind of touched on the beginning of the show. There's really no explanation for what Nathaniel Hackett was thinking. To say, hey, you know, 46-yard line, 64-yard kick for a field goal kicker, no big deal in a stadium where I think uh, no 58-yarder has been hitting forever. It was a tall ass. Now, it had a lot of leg, and it just kind of just missed, but it's difficult. Like, the wind can shift a little bit. It, it, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, we were waiting for Nathaniel Hackett to uh, go to the podium, do an interview on radio or something like that. Uh, he has finally uh, spoken. Here's Nathaniel Hackett uh, talking about that decision. Hello, you play to win the game. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's Herm. That's Herm Edwards. It's easy to confuse the guys, right? No. They're very, very much the same person. Here he is for you. There we go. You know, looking back at it, we definitely should have gone for it. Um, just not, not, you know, one of those things. You look back at it and you say, of course we should go for it. We missed the field goal. Um, but in that situation, we had a plan. I mean, we had a plan. We knew that the 46 was the mark. Uh, we were third and 15, I think, third and 13. I'm more upset about that play before it to lose yards, to be able to, you know, Getting that there would have definitely uh, been better to be able to call that same play and get extra yards. But um, he dumps it out to Javante. Javante makes a move, goes a lot farther than I think we had anticipated. We were expecting to go for it on fourth down. And then you hit the mark. You know, you know looking back at it, we definitely should have gone for it. Um, just All right. not, not, you know, right, one of those down, things. Yeah. You, look back. you know, there's certain coaches that like instill confidence in you, like Brandon Staley. Right? Remember his press conferences and you're like, wow, I, I feel smarter yeah. have, for have listening to him. The exact opposite there with Nathaniel Hackett. Like, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. He just kind of exactly contradicted himself. Yes. It's like, oh, if we didn't get more yards, we would have gone for it. Can we hear that again? Like, do we need to? I feel like I'm going to get dumber because of it. What just happened? You know, looking back at it, we definitely should have gone for it. (laughs) So he blames the play beforehand. But says... If we get it, if we get the right field goal, then it's the right decision. And one thing he doesn't acknowledge is the 39 seconds that they let pass between the two players, sure. which hey, is phrasing. Sure. <laughs> 39 seconds. Um, Come on, Nathaniel Hackett. He's yeah, just no, covering his own ass, right? But like, he that's didn't. But no, but it was like a weird act attempt of that. That's a like. That's an answer to a question that's ass, only yes. going to arise more questions. He didn't actually explain anything. That doesn't make any sense at all. No. Oh, if we, if we got less yards, we would have gone for it. You still need need to get the first down. When you make a terrible decision like that as a coach, the next day all you can do is be confident and say, hey, this decision we made, it was wrong, move on. He's like mishy-mashy, like kind of trying to play both it's, sides here. It's very much like results 
influence the process. Because if if he hits that kick, everything's good. The next time a yep. 59-yard field goal decision comes up, is that what he's going to do? Those are still difficult to hit, even if the one time you got it, he hit it. But that, to me, sounds like a guy who's going to go for it again in that scenario. Or, sorry, kick it again in that scenario. I he, have a theory. What do you, what's your theory? He had skin in the game. You know what he didn't have? A wheelbarrow. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to my guy, Mike McDaniel. That was a rough ask there for uh, Nathaniel Hackett. Man, I, I told you. Right off the top. You this know what is... that press conference honestly was, though? Yeah. Sloppy, just like his play calling, like his game planning. Yeah. It was sloppy. I'm a Broncos player. I'm a little confused by uh, that whole explanation. All right. Uh, before we get to uh, Bob Condotta on the other side, uh, continue talking about that game, let's get to Turf Trivia, the Turf Trivia champion. Abbotsford right now, big win yesterday. Picking up two tickets to WWE Saturday Night Main Event on September 24th at the Pacific Coliseum. Undisputed WWE Universal Champ Roman Reigns will be live. Seth Rollins, our guy Dolph Ziggler, many more. Tickets start at $20. Available at ticketleader.ca on the 24th. What's the question, Randy? All right, we're going to keep... doesn't matter! <laughs> Can't use that against me. Come on, man. I'm a wrestling guy. All right, today's question has to do with quarterbacks. We're talking about a couple with Mark there. Kirk Cousins was also another one we talked about. He was drafted in 2012 in the fourth round. Who was the NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year in Cousins' rookie season? Who was the NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year in Cousins' rookie season? If you know the answer, 650-650. If you don't, you got some time to, to look it up. Google it. Text back in, 650-650. We won't judge you. No, we'll, we'll pick a winner on the other side. You could be going to WWE Saturday Night Main Event. Courtesy of the People Show, home of the Canucks, Sports Night 650. All I have to say is, let's ride.